Father, we want to thank you for this book. We thank you for its promises and the power therein. We thank you for its guidance. We thank you, Father, for the effect that it brings into our lives of joy as we realize the control of our Father. For you said that the commandments of God are pure, rejoicing the heart. You spoke about the man who would meditate in the scriptures day and night, that he would be blessed or happy, like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. We are looking, Father, for the principles of life. We are looking to learn of you. And we believe, Father, that by looking into the law of liberty, as James called it, you will give us the answers to the questions that we have, the questions of how to live a life that is pleasing and honorable to the one to whom we belong, Jesus Christ. We commit this time, our very souls and hearts and minds, into your keeping. Teach us, feed us, Lord, tonight in green pastures. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've seen already in Genesis that we have lots of firsts or beginnings. Now, you know the word Genesis means beginning or origins. We've seen several beginnings and origins. We've seen the beginning, the first creation the first man, how that he was incomplete and it was not good that he should be alone, so God made the first woman and God brought the woman to the man. We see the first Sabbath so far in the book of Genesis where God rested from all of his works and that becomes then a foreshadow of the children of Israel who will rest on the seventh day of the week and it becomes a foreshadow of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and so he is our Sabbath, our rest, and we rest in him. So we have the first family, the first form of labor. As the ground is cursed because of man's sin, of course the first rebellion, the first sin is committed, the first murder is committed. We've already seen the first sacrifice that has been made. And man's relationship with God is now based upon the slaying of an innocent animal the blood of an innocent victim, or what we would call vicarious atonement. The taking of one life as sacrifice for the right standing of another life before God. We've seen all of that so far in the book of Genesis, and now we are seeing the beginnings of the first civilization. We have already gone through several genealogical paths as the family of Adam is traced. The story narrows a bit here in chapter 10, and we're going to go through a few lines or a few races of people. Actually, the genealogy of three people will be traced, two will be dropped, and one will continue. And that's sort of a pattern you'll see throughout the rest of the Bible, especially the first book, the book of Genesis. The first line is recorded, the rejected line. God gets all of that out of the way to show you some briefly where they ended up. And he saves, finally, well, you can see it in chapter 10, in the line of Seth, the accepted line that will lead eventually to Jesus Christ. Now that becomes a pattern. God is not interested in showing us a complete history of civilization. And Genesis doesn't do that. Its purpose is to show us that since the fall, God has had a plan for mankind to redeem us from sin. Therefore... The lineage that God is concerned with is the godly line of the Semites, Shem. Actually, it's not a godly line. It doesn't become very godly as we go along. But it will house Abraham, the man of faith, and his lineage, and it will take us all the way to Jesus Christ. It's important that we keep something in view that we remembered when we first started out the book of Genesis. And that is, though we are dealing with governments being set up, jurisprudence and law systems being set up already as we saw last week. Before there was any institution, before there was any government, before there was any formal organizations, 
the first thing God established upon which society was founded was marriage. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that's the basis of any civilization, is a solid marriage based upon God's principles. It's been well said that a family can survive without a nation, but a nation cannot survive without the family. So why is it that our country is trying to do so? By throwing out the traditional family, by making light of lifelong commitments. And now instead of until death do us part, it's until debt do us part, or until feelings do us part. The door is left wide open. Society in its beginning was based upon the marriage. And then from that, even in the midst of a sinful condition, God builds His society upon those building blocks. Well, beginning in verse 2 through about verse 5, we have the lineage of Japheth. And then in verses 6 through 20, the lineage of Ham. And then finally Shem in verses 21 through 32. And as we said, that's a pattern that you're going to see throughout the Scripture. But this chapter has been called the Table of Nations, or the Origin of Nations. It's, a, it's an ethnological table. And if you're interested in depth in this, if this is your bag of anthropology and ethnology, there are great in-depth books you can cover on it. We're not going to cover it in depth, but we're going to show you how that civilization basically stemmed from these three lines. We have on the map behind us not all, but some of the names listed in this Table of Nations. The map wasn't big enough to include them all because it extends up past the Black Sea into the Soviet area, way west over into Europe and the Celtic states uh, where these people in chapter 10 settled. But at least you'll be able to see part of them as we travel along tonight. Um, by the way, all of these names have been found in archaeological discoveries in the past century. Every one of them has been substantiated by archaeology in the Near East upon tablets found in several places. And that perhaps as we travel along in Genesis, we'll bring up some of those discoveries from Mari uh, in Assyria and in Nineveh and so forth. But now this is the genealogy, verse 1, of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavan, or Javan, Tubal, or Tuval, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his own language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Japheth are important to us because that's our ancestors. It's the line of Japheth that forms the Indo-European peoples. You know, that's an interesting concept in and of itself. Indo, meaning from India, and the areas surrounding that, slash European. It's interesting that usually over here in the West and even in the East, we make a marked distinction between East and West. Well, that's the East and we're in the West. Not knowing that originally we came from the same root, the Indo-European peoples. First of all on the list is Gomer. Now, of course, you know that Gomer was the one who said, Golly, but this is a different Gomer. He's not the father of Andy Griffith or the... Um, star of that. Ancient historians tell us that he settled north of the Black Sea. If you have a Bible in the back, a Bible in the back of your Bible, a map in the back of your Bible that's expanded more than this one, you might want to look at it and perhaps it's written there on the top, north of the Black Sea, as you follow your map up from Israel. Uh, it might even have Gomer uh, written in the back. It depends on the extent of the map in the back of your Bible. Later on, Gomer and his descendants moved west a little bit toward Europe and settled in France, Spain, and some of the countries around that area. His sons are spoken about in verse 3, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, first of all. 
who settled north of Israel at the beginning, up past Lebanon and, and scattered throughout the region north of Israel. As time went on, Ashkenaz migrated westward into the area of Germany. And it's because of that fact that there are still Ashkenazi Jews, which is a broad term given to those Jews who came from Germany and settled back into the land with their customs and so forth. They're called the Ashkenazis. Beginning settling north of Israel and then moving westward a little bit later on. Then we also read about Tagarma. That's the ancient Armenians. If you look on the map and you see where Noah's Ark is, that red, supposed to be a boat-like uh, look on the map. Uh, that's the area roughly of uh, Tagarma. Then we read about Magog. Magog is mentioned several times in history. Gog and Magog out of the book of Ezekiel. Josephus mentions Magog. And uh, it is supposed that Magog were the uh, descendants eventually were the Scythians, the Slavs, the Russians or the Soviets in that area, the Bulgarians, the Bohemians, the Polish peoples, and the Croatians came from Magog. Josephus identifies Magog principally as the Soviet area, present day what we used to call Russia, the Soviet republics. Then we get to, uh, in verse 2, Madai is third on the list. He's the ancient ancestors of the Medes. Now the Medes will become important to you as we travel on throughout the scripture. The Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, comes into view after the Babylonian Empire some years later. So that's the ancient Medes. Uh, settled in Persia, expanded to include the people of India, the Iranian peoples, the Afghans, and the Kurds, if you're taking notes. Next on the list is Javan, Yavan. This is the Greek-speaking people scattered around the Mediterranean Sea. Greeks and eventually Romans and the Romance societies like France and also the Italians uh, were included in this. Then we get Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus, names that should really be taken all together because they're from the basic, basically the same area. Tubal and Meshach settled north and east of the Black Sea. And as we read history, Tubal and Meshach were ancient names for two modern-day cities, Tobolsk and Moscow. Some of the ancient historians, in fact, Herodotus of the 5th century BC, remarked about the Muscovites who dwelt in Meshach, right next to the river where it presently sits. And then Tobolsk, uh, ancient Tubal, settled on the Tobal River, still intact today. Then Tyrus. Josephus says of Tyrus that he was the father of the, the Thracians, which was a combination group later on with the Greeks that settled north and uh, west in Europe. Some believe also that he was the father of the Germans and the Anglo-Saxons. So, basically, for most of us, that's our roots. Somewhere traced in that lineage could be our background, our ancestors, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and grandmother, perhaps. Then beginning in verse 6, we have the sons of Ham. They were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, Sabtecha, the sons of Ra'amah were Sheba and Dida. And listen, if you want a fun exercise, try to read this out loud on your own. In front of somebody. You know, it's interesting. People are always looking for biblical names, yet I've never really dedicated a baby with any of these names so far. And uh, I would uh, recommend that you stay away from them, especially the next one, because it says, Cush begot Nimrod. You don't want to name your kid Nimrod because he's really the first idol worshiper that we read about in the land. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now the sons of Ham took the areas south of the Fertile Crescent and occupied the African countries, many of them. And then they went also, they kind of had a division. They went 
south and some of them went far east, including the Mideast, some of the Mideast peoples, and the Far East, the Oriental cultures. So Ham was divided up into two lines. We read about in verse uh, 6, a guy by the name of Cush. That's the biblical name for Ethiopia in Africa. And it also becomes a prophetic name for Ethiopia in the future. And you'll see Ethiopia aligning in the last days with the Antichrist. Apparently, Cush also divides his lineage into two parts. Some go to Ethiopia, some go toward Arabia and settle there because there's been ethnological evidence of him settling or his ancestors settling in that area. Then we read also uh, Mizraim. That's the customary ancient name for Egypt. So you can see the line of Ham is moving south into northern Africa. Put is the name for Libya. And then we get to Canaan. Now we should know about Canaan by this time. This is the ancient land that God will eventually give to the children of Israel. As Abraham comes down, goes into Egypt, eventually goes back into the land because there's famine eventually. Uh, the sons of Abraham settle down in Egypt. They're oppressed by the Pharaoh. God promises them a land, the land of Canaan. And so the Canaanites were several different groups that settled in and around the land of Israel. The Hivites, the Jebusites from Jebus, or ancient Jerusalem, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Termites. No, I'm just kidding. But there's a lot of these ites that settled around the land of the area called the Canaanites. Now, it was Canaan that was the particular branch of the line of Ham that was cursed by God, because we read about it last week. Let's review it back in chapter 9. Verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine, that is, after he was in a drunken stupor, and he knew what his younger son had done to him, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. Now that's a prophecy that was not fulfilled immediately after this. It was fulfilled much later on when, to judge the Canaanites, he used the children of Israel by giving the land of Canaan to the children of Israel. However, it wasn't that God just singled them out to judge them. God gave them 400 years of grace for the people of Canaan to repent. For God even said that their cup of iniquity, we'll read it later on, is not yet full. The iniquity of the Amorites, that's another portion of Canaanites, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So in God's patience, He let that cup of wrath fill up giving them grace, giving them time to change. What means he used to communicate his message to them, we're not quite certain, except that when the children of Israel do take over the land of Canaan, the Canaanites have heard of the great God that the children of Israel have served. And the dread and the fear of the children of Israel seizes their hearts as they march into Jericho. That's what Rahab the harlot says. The fear of you has terrorized us. We've heard about your God. And so God used them to get his message across to them. They didn't repent. So God gives the land of Canaan to the children of Israel after being in bondage in Egypt some 400 years. In verse 8, we read about Nimrod. Interesting guy. Um, he's significant because he not only establishes cities and kingdoms, but he's also mighty. The first time it's used of a man is used of Nimrod. Three times in this portion of scripture, Nimrod is called a mighty man. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was called Babel, which will become Babylon. Eric... Ahad, or Akkad, Kalne, and the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rasan, or Resen between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city, Mizraim, Ludim. He built a lot of towns. This guy was a developer. He was a real estate developer. 
But it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He started Babel. Now, right here, you should begin to get acquainted with Babylon. There is one area, there is one principal region and one principal city that is the antithesis to Jerusalem, the Jewish nation, and God's plan through a city, through a nation, that's Babylon. It's the only city mentioned in the scripture as much as Jerusalem is mentioned, and it's always seen in opposition to God's plan. It's always seen in some kind of evil connection, a connection of judgment or idol worship and so forth, and we see here that it begins here. Um, it was Martin Luther that suggested when the scripture says here, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, that this was not a good connotation, but from the original languages, an evil connotation, that he was a hunter not of wild game, but of men. That because of his autocratic rule, dictatorial rule, his viciousness, his fierceness, that he killed men to get his way, he was a warrior, he was a soldier, he was like a modern Saddam Hussein, if you will, and would not think anything of killing people to get his way and to build up his own kingdom. Actually, they, I find an interesting parallel between Nimrod and modern Babylon with Saddam, who has spent millions and millions and millions of dollars of his own people's money to build up the ancient city of Babylon with his name in it, calling himself Nebuchadnezzar III, wanting to be the ruler of that region, actually the ruler of the world. I'd like to uh, give you this verse, however, in a paraphrased version by a commentator. Perhaps it will give you a more clearer meaning. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty despot in the land. He was an arrogant tyrant, defiant before the face of the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Nimrod, a mighty despot, haughty before the face of the Lord. Now his city will be described later on. In chapter 11, as we read the Tower of Babel. But it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now from Genesis 10 all the way to Revelation 18, you're going to read about Babylon. In fact, you may do well just to skip ahead for a few moments and look over at Revelation chapter 18. The final doom of Babylon is predicted. You know, I love to hear Bible pages turning. It's a sign of a healthy church. Everybody brings their Bible. In verse 21, let's just, we can't read uh, two chapters here tonight. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. And no craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. The sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. Speaking of a total, absolute destruction. And the light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. The voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain upon the earth. Now we read in this section, though not in these verses, that there is an alleluia that goes up when Babylon, the great whore, she is called, filled with idolatry and abominations, is destroyed by God. The great whore in Revelation is antithetically set against the bride of Christ who has been taken away, preserved by God, and the great whore in the book of Revelation in the tribulation is judged. And as we've already seen, um, Babylon is the opposite of the Jewish nation. And you, you'll see this in Old Testament history. Whenever Babylon rises in strength, the Jews are oppressed. When the Jews begin to rise, it's because Babylon is dormant. And there's this constant northeast to south uh, fighting that goes on between uh, these two nations. Let's read on. Uh, list all these cities. Canaan begot Sidon, 
his firstborn in Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, these are Canaanites, Hivite, Archite, Sinite, Arvadite, Zemurite, Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. Probably they couldn't keep up with all those names. I don't know. Let's go down to verse 21. And children were also born to Shem. Now we have that third division. The other two lines will be dropped. The line of Shem will now be taken up. And we'll read about that really throughout the rest of the scripture. Shem produces Semites. You heard of anti-Semitism? Semite is from the line of Shem. Anti-Semitism speaks of an attitude against a portion of the line of Shem, the Jewish nation. Though the Semites incorporate a large group of people, but Israel did come from them. And uh, you're going to find that the rest of the scripture is now concerned with the line of Shem. Um, the father of all the children of Eber. Interesting word, Eber. It is believed by most scholars that Heberu comes from Eber. And it's through his lineage that the Hebrew uh, nation was established. Uh, we read about in verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam. You'll read about the Elamites later on. Okay, let me just prime the pump. Abram will settle in this land. He'll come from the land of the east, settle into the land of Canaan as God directs him. While he's there, an Elamite king will come and attack. His name is strange, Shedder Leomar, one of five kings that comes and attacks, which forces Abraham to counterattack and uh, destroy these kings and take over that section. It's uh, an Elamite king that later on will do that. Um, the capital of Elam becomes Shushan. Does that ring a bell? Shushan. Remember Nehemiah is the cupbearer for Artaxerxes the king? Where? In Shushan in the palace, the citadel, it becomes the capital of the Persian Empire later on. So Elamites in Shushan. Then we read about Ashur, the founder of the Assyrians. Lud or Lud, however you want to pronounce it, you know, I think either way you're going to be all right. He's the ancestor of the Lydians. Aram, he's the father of the Syrians. Now if you have an NIV, Throughout the rest of the scripture, you won't see Syria. You'll see Aram. But if you've got the Textus Receptus, the King James or the New King James, you're going to find uh, Syria spoken about, and he is the, uh, that's the progeny of Aram. Is that important? Well, it becomes important because a language develops from Aram, from Syria, called Aramaic. From Aram, Aramaic. It's one of the three languages of the Old Testament. Actually, it's one of the two languages of the Old Testament, one of the three languages of the Bible. Hebrew is the principal language of the Old Testament, but there are some portions where Aramaic is spoken. For instance, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1 through chapter 2, first part of chap uh, chapter 2, verse 4, the first half of the verse, it's written in Hebrew. But from Daniel 2, verse 4, second half of the verse, all the way through chapter 7, verse 28. It's all written in Aramaic, which was the principal language of the captivity while the Jews were in captivity. Then the rest of the book of Daniel and most of the rest of the Old Testament will be filmed in Hebrew. And then you read about in the New Testament Greek. However, Jesus spoke Aramaic because when the children of Israel came back from the captivity in Babylon, taken over by Assyria or Aram. The Aramaic language that was from that area was picked up by the Jews and when they settled in the land they spoke Aramaic. And you read about Jesus saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He's speaking Aramaic from the cross, the principal language because of the Jews being in captivity for so many years. So a little Bible trivia for you to tuck away as you go on. Now we read in verse uh, 31, these were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, 
And from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. There's a lot of controversy around that verse. I don't want to get into it. Let's get into the next chapter. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Indeed, the people are one. They have one language. This is what they have begun or begin to do. Now nothing that they propose will be withheld from them. Come, let us. Interesting phrase again for God to say, let us. An inner Trinitarian communication. Let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Chapter 11, first of all, is important for a couple different reasons. There's a great contrast. There is the Tower of Babel that is built as men are congregating in cities, building shrines unto themselves. And then also there's the call of Abram, who left Shinar, or of the Chaldees, ancient Babylon, the Tigris-Euphrates River Delta, as seen on the map behind us. Yep, it's there. He left that area to go to a land that God told him. On one hand, you have man building up a name for himself, wanting a city for himself, wanting a plaque for himself. And you have Abram, who left his country in faith and obedience to God. And listen to what the book of Hebrews tells us concerning Abram. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he would receive as an inheritance. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So we have a contrast in chapter 11 of an earthly city being built and God confounding it and Abraham seeking a heavenly city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. Contrast between someone who is earthbound and someone whose citizenship is in heaven. Actually, there's some beautiful lessons here. In the first four verses, we see, and it began in the last chapter with Nimrod, that man begins rushing towards cities, congregating in a common language, to be next to each other, building their cities. I think, personally, that from the beginning we see an illustration of the hunger of humanity for companionship. And so they seek to be around each other in cities with lots of activities, a lot of stuff to do. And of course, that's kind of the common push today. We are becoming more urbanized than ever before. At one time, during the Roman Empire, there was another great surge of the population as they left the country and began to populate in cities because of the advantages, companionship, a lot of stuff to do. And today, more than ever before, most of the population of the world lives in large cities. Yet, though perhaps people are looking for something to do and activities and constant stimulation, it seems that the loneliest places are the largest cities. I've often found that to be true. Though people will move there for activity and to kill their loneliness, yet they're often the saddest, loneliest places. Now there's something very important in this. Lots of people don't make for the absence of loneliness, don't make for necessarily healthy relationships. Now I know people say, I'm a people person. I like to be around a lot of people. Well, I do too. I like to be around a lot of people. However, you can only cultivate in life a few true, real friendships. You can't do it with tons of people. Hence the need for making contact with small groups. I've maintained that this is one of the strengths of the early church. They met corporately in the temple, the Bible tells us in the first part of Acts. They met in the synagogues. They met in the temple. But they met from house to house. There was corporate large community celebrations mixed with intimate home celebration, kinship, koinonia. They had both. They had both. It's estimated that the early church 
After the first few months, was about 25,000 members in one local church in Jerusalem. And yet it says they all had everything in common. They had koinonia. They had fellowship one with another because they just didn't celebrate in the large court of the Gentiles temple arena, but they met from house to house and had fellowship one with another. Well, in the beginning here, men are pushing to congregate uh, toward each other. And uh, it says they built a tower. Over in the area, you can look on the map and you look at the Babylonian area where all that river delta is, the Persian Gulf, that's the cradle of civilization. Archaeology has shown there are many towers that have been built in that area. They call them ziggurats. The closest thing that we have to that around is the Holiday Inn Pyramid. Really, it was built after a ziggurat, though it's perhaps a Central Mexican or a South American, Central American Incan ziggurat, it was still, that was the form of the towers, except they were much larger, up to 300 feet tall, according to some of the best archaeological discoveries. Several layers, up to a point, some 300 feet tall, some of them. Um, there was a staircase that encircled the entire ziggurat tower to take you up to the top. Often the zodiac and the gods of nature were worshipped in Babylon. That's where they believed nature worship developed. One of the gods of the moon was called Nana. I don't know if that's where the kids started going, Nana, Nana, Nana. But anyway, it came from Babylon. The moon god, or I don't know if it was the god or the goddess, but it was called Nana and was worshipped on some of the towers. Well, they wanted to build the Tower of Towers, as we see here, because it says, whose top is in the heavens. One translation says, whose top will reach up into the heavens. It seems to me that in building this tower, at least in part, they were conscious of God. And yet, on the other hand, they did not want to have God control them. As Paul said, they didn't want to retain God in their thinking. And so God gave them over more and more to a debased mind. But they were still conscious of God. They wanted that tower to reach up into the heavens and be a monument. But it was for the glory of man, as we go on and we read, whose top is in the heavens. I think that every temple that is built, every tower that is built, every church, every form of place of worship is an indication of the deep need that man has to satisfy his spirit, his soul. Man is not just flesh. Man is not just mind and intellect. There is a part of man that is destined to communicate with God. The Bible says that God made us subject to emptiness or vanity. And that wasn't our wish, Paul said. It was by the reason of him who subjected the same in hope. God made us with an empty spot that can only be filled. We can only be totally satisfied when we are communing with God. And so man has created a tripartite being, according to the scripture. Body, soul, and spirit. Or body, suke, mind, and spirit. Now we all know about the body. We're body conscious from day one. Kids discover their body, look in the mirror, they pull their cheeks. They're hungry, they cry. They have to go to the bathroom, they cry. They're body conscious. There's also the mind. That's part of it. We, we develop that as we grow up. But then there's also the spirit part of man that until a man is born again is dormant, though crying out to be satisfied with God. When a man is born again, born from above, he has a spiritual regeneration. He was born physically. But when God touches him spiritually, that part of him that lies dormant comes alive. There's that communication with the Father. And at first, it was body on top, soul, somewhere in the middle, spirit, way on the bottom, lying dormant. The person went through life having the mind of the flesh. He was constantly thinking about, what can I eat? Where can I move? How can I be satisfied? How can I have activities? He was constantly being dominated by the mind of the flesh. When God touched his life, and he said, Jesus, save me. He did a flip. He turned right side up. 
spirit was now on top, destined to dominate the rest of his life, so that he should now have the mind of the spirit, not the mind of the flesh. The flesh was to be controlled by the mind of the spirit. The Bible calls that self-control, something you can't do by yourself until the spirit is controlled by God. Man was body conscious, but even in the beginning, there's always that reaching out toward its creator. In one sense, wanting to have complete independence, but in the other sense, knowing that there's something that's missing. I'm not satisfied till I make contact with God. It's been said that man is incurably religious. Karl Marx said that. He was right. It's that part of man that reaches out for the creator, hunger and thirst. But, notice the personal pronouns in these verses. Once a tower reaching up into heaven, but notice what it says. Come, verse 4, let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This is the beginning of humanism. Oh yeah, you know, humanism, it's come in the last few centuries. No, it hasn't. It's been since the beginning Man has fallen. The flood did not cure the sinful nature of man. It took away lots of people. And then there was the repopulation of the earth. But since the fall of man, every human being has a sinful nature alienated from God as a result of the fall. And uh, that's become the motto of humanity, hasn't it? Let's make a name for ourselves. After I'm long gone, I want to be remembered. And so we build schools and put our names on them. And cathedrals and put our names on them. Or we want a plaque in some wing of the church or some wing of the school or hospital with our name on it. Let's make a name for ourselves. It's the motto of humanity. This was glory to man in the highest. That's what the tower was all about. That's why God sees this whole thing and there's an intervention that takes place. This is man's city built by man for man. In contrast, once again, to the call of Abram later on in this chapter, who looked for a city who had, that had foundations, whose maker and builder was God. His citizenship was in heaven. Babel, or the Tower of Babel, will eventually become Babylon. Now think for a moment of all that we've commented on, and let's go down the line. Let's go down the turnpike a few centuries to Babylon being that great city, one of the seven wonders of the world with its hanging gardens, its walls, and so forth, to a time when one by the name of Nebuchadnezzar ruled it. He had much the same thinking as his predecessor Nimrod. He wanted a name. One night Nebuchadnezzar is troubled because he has a dream. It really bothers him. In his dream he sees an image set out in the plains of Shinar. The top, the head, is of gold. Below the gold, the chest and arms are made of pure silver. As the image goes down, the stomach and thighs are made of brilliant brass or bronze. And then the legs and the feet, or the legs were made of iron, and the feet and the ten toes were part iron and part clay. Now this really bothered, it troubled him, because he had been wondering that night what will become of my kingdom? What does the future have in store for Nebi? And so God revealed in a dream what would happen. Being troubled by the dream, he called all of his wise men, the satraps and uh, the wizards and so forth, the enchanters from Babylon, and he said, I had a horrible night's sleep. I had a bad dream. I want you to interpret my dream. Oh, no problem. Tell us the dream. No, that's too easy. Tell you what, you tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me what it means. And then I'll know that you're really worth your salt. Hey, King, come on. You tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. No. In fact, if you don't tell me what I dreamed and its meaning, I will cut you up in pieces and make your houses a dunghill. They said, no king in history has ever said that. Well, this is a first. Finally, the decree went out, kill everyone. I don't want any of these wise guys around. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego heard, heard about this thing. Daniel says, tell the king to slow down, man. Chill out. Don't let him be so hasty. 
There's a God in heaven who knows what he's dreams, and I'll give him the interpretation. So he walks in. Neb says, now I hear that you can interpret dreams, and you can tell me what these things are. No, I can't interpret dreams, but there's a God in heaven who can. And he gave a witness from the beginning on, and basically, let me just shorten the story. He said, you were wondering what would happen in the future, and God revealed to you a plan. You, O king, are the head of gold. But after you will come an inferior kingdom. The Medes and the Persians will take you over. The Medes and the Persians were over building up their strength. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to hear that. After you and after the Medes and the Persians will come the stomach and thighs of brass. The Grecian Empire spelled it out for them. And eventually another empire, though inferior, much stronger, which turned out to be the Roman Empire. Finally, he said, in the last period of time, there will come a collaboration of ten kingdoms, ten nations, part of iron, part of clay, related somehow to its ancient predecessor, Rome. It's got its own deal going. In the days of those kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up his kingdom upon the earth, which will never be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar went, wow, that's exactly what I dreamed. However, the next chapter reveals the rebellious heart that he got from his predecessor, Nimrod. He sees in the dream gold, silver, brass, iron, and iron and clay. A succession of kingdoms. What does he do? He builds an entire statue out of pure gold. Commands everybody in the kingdom to worship it as he sets it on the plains of Shinar or Dura. And what was he saying? He was saying, no. I'm building myself a name. It will be worshipped. And whoever doesn't bow down, I'll throw him in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And anyway, you know about the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow. So we'd rather burn than bow. Now Nebuchadnezzar does, does not learn his lesson. Because later on, a few chapters later, he's walking around his house, looking over the gardens of Babylon, the Ishtar Gate, the Euphrates River as it runs through the center of town. He looks it over and he goes, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built for my glory? He didn't even finish the sentence, and God struck him, as God intervenes here in chapter 11 of Genesis. Nebuchadnezzar goes mad. Seven seasons pass over him. He grows hair out, he has claws on, and he's a lycanthropist for seven seasons, whether that means seven seasons of the year or seven years. He goes insane until he learns his lesson. Don't mess with God. The pride of his heart was lifted up, and God's response to it. Oh, we read in verse 5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now before we move on and finish this chapter, which is a list of descendants, let's look at it on the personal level. Are you living for the earthly city or is your citizenship in heaven? Are you tied to this earth? Moreover, do you have a tower of Babel that you have built in your life? Some area of rebellion against God? I'm going to do this thing, man. Whether you like it or not, God, I'm doing it. Whew. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, the Bible says. Our citizenship, Paul said, is in heaven. Abram looked for a city that had foundations, whose maker and builder is God. Which city would you rather be a part of? See, we should always live as one person, one friend of mine said, with eternity stamped on our eyes. This is so temporary, it's so transient. We don't see that because we're locked into the time-space continuum. But it's so transient. Our life is but a vapor. The older you get, you know how true that is. Now, I'm not speaking one with experience. I'm only 37. But the more I speak to people who grow older, who are older, they say, boy, it seems that that's truer as time goes on. It's just a vapor. It's so quick. Why be locked in and tied to this transient world? Let's live in the light of the future. I often hear, and I'm sick of hearing it, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Listen, you're really no earthly good till you are heavenly minded. Then you can have a light touch with the things of this world. Paul said that our body is like a tent. A tent is not meant to live in permanently. It's very temporary. You go camping in it, you spend a few days in it, but you don't live in it unless you're a Bedouin. It's very temporary. And so we should have a light touch with this world and live in the light of the future. Paul said, we in this tent do earnestly groan. 
desiring to be clothed with that habitation which is from heaven. Now one day you're going to get into a permanent house. It's going to look a lot different than this, believe me. It's not going to grow old, no wrinkles. Won't lose hair. No creaks in the back. Suited for heaven. And you'll be like him, for you will see him as he is. So let's live in the light of eternity instead of building our little babbles and towers and locking into the things of this world. Live in the light of the future. Heaven. A lot of people misunderstand heaven. Well, what will it be like? It sounds boring to me. Listen, I'm not going to sit on a cloud and play a harp, all right? I don't plan on doing that. First of all, I plan to fellowship. Well, actually, first of all, we're going to worship. You'll see the Lord face to face. You'll be able to tell Him your deepest heart, how much you love Him and adore Him face to face. You'll be able to fellowship with Abram. Spend two, three, four, five, six thousand years with Abram. Abram, let's take a long walk. What was it like in Ur of the Chaldees? What was it like when God commanded that you should leave your father's house and go? What did it feel like? Fellowshipping. And you will be administrating. You'll have some charge over the kingdom age ruling for a period of time, at least a thousand years, with the rod of iron. That sounds exciting. And in cooperation with him. Now, the Lord came down to see the city, the tower which the sons of man had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one. They have one language. This is what they begin to do. Nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. They could pool their knowledge. They could pool their resources. One of the greatest barriers on earth is a language barrier. What would it be like if tomorrow you went to work and nobody spoke the same language? Wouldn't get much work done. Probably wouldn't get any work done except bye. He'd wave and go home. They had communication. They had language. Nothing would be restrained. And so God puts up a barrier, confounds their language. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, the name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Babel means confusion, hence Babylon. This is the genealogy of Shem, and uh, so now the stream again narrows down to Shem and so forth. Um, Shem was a hundred years old, and he begot Arphaxad. Two years after the flood. I looked up this guy, and the more research I tried to find out, we don't know much about him except his name mentioned here. Yet I noticed on the map behind me the descendants of Arphaxad settled right up there, right north, a little bit east of Babylon. I didn't find that out. I'd be interested to find out which uh, text you all got that from and put that up so you can teach me afterwards. Uh, verse 10 is an important turning point. So far we've had the history of the sons of Adam. And now we're going through the lineage of Abraham through Shem and then on down to Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not going to read them all. I'd like you to skip over to verse 27. Terah's descendants. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, or Haran. Haran begot Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Sarai means dominating or head. It's a fascinating story what we're getting into. And the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, daughter of Haran's wife, or of Haran the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, literally sterile. She had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his uh, son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. So identify on the map Ur of the Chaldeans, Ur, in the plain of Shinar in Babylon, the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. And then go to the left, your left, and uh, you see the land of Canaan. So God commanded them, leave and go to Canaan. They came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years. 
And Terah died in Haran. Now, the next several chapters are some of the most fascinating. I really wanted to get through a couple more, but it's impossible the way we're going through Genesis so far. Again, we're laying a foundation. And who knows, we might keep a snail's pace throughout the rest of the Bible, but it's interesting stuff what's coming up. And I'll tell you what, one thing I appreciate about the way the Bible is written, it's not given to us in systematic theology. It doesn't open up by saying, this is the doctrine of God. And then Christology and pneumatology and soteriology. Just, we read about creation, the problem, the remedy that God sends for the sin of the world. Then we begin a list of stories about the people in the lineage of Christ, the heroes of the Bible, and first Abram becomes Abraham, the father of faith. What's interesting is in the midst of these stories, these human interest stories, is not found perfection, but lots of faults. I want you to keep your eyes peeled for the faults for the simple reason that most of us have tended to look at the Bible through a stained glass window. Oh, Abraham, so perfect. The father of faith. Yeah, he was the father of faith, but he had lots of lapses of faith. There was a lot of times where he flatly disbelieved and disobeyed God. And one of the times was at the beginning when God called him. Did you know, and we'll discover next week, he waited 15 years to fully obey God. Took him 15 years, and God doesn't speak to Abram until he obeys the first command that he gave 15 years before. In other words, I've got nothing to say to you till you obey step number one. Then God speaks to him again. We notice that he comes, in verse 31, from Ur of the Chaldeans. The archaeologist Spade tells us a lot about that area. It's not some podunk little town out in the desert. At this time, there were over 300,000 people that lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. It was four square miles with walls that were pretty formidable as a fortress around it. It is on the banks of the Euphrates River, in the Tigris-Euphrates River Delta, the Persian Gulf, that silt-enriched area where anything could grow, where perhaps the Garden of Eden once sat. It had one of the greatest universities, one of the greatest libraries, advancements in mathematics, advancements in uh, a science were developed there. The 360 degrees in a circle was developed in Babylon and perhaps Ur of the Chaldees. Some of the greatest advancements that we still use today in math as a premise for math and science were developed back in that area. It was also polytheistic. I'm giving you a little bit of background of next week so you know what kind of a town Abram comes from. Meaning they worshipped many gods. Nana was one of them. Abram grew up worshipping Nana, the moon god. Terah, Abram's dad, was an idol worshiper. Some scholars believe even a priest in a pagan temple. He grew up in a polytheistic pagan worshiping home. So how do you know that? Well, turn over with me and we'll close at Genesis, no, at Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. So obviously they had that history that was not included in the text that we just read. But they knew it because that's their heritage. He was an idol worshiper. Now that's the background Abram comes from. That kind of a town, very intellectual. Probably advanced himself in learning. He was very wealthy. And yet God calls him to leave. And uh, the Lord said to Abram, chapter 12, Get out of your country from your kindred, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. We're going to see a beautiful picture of salvation. We're in the midst of a guy going his own way, God interrupts his life and says, you've been walking this way, now walk this way. 
follow me to a land that I'm going to show you. And that's a beautiful picture of what God seeks to do in every person's life. Come and rescue you from whatever your background is into a relationship with him. Father, we thank you for the rich examples, the honest examples that we find upon the pages of the Holy Writ. We see Abram, who like all the rest of us was a man of like passions. A man from a background perhaps like some of us. But one that you rescued and you called and you promised that through him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Lord, that's a promise to each one of us. You will bless others through our lives as we are surrendered to you and your plan. You will make us a blessing. You'll bless us personally, but then you'll make our lives like rivers of living water gushing out toward others. We pray, Father, that we might receive the work of the Spirit of God in our own lives, that you might refresh and touch others because of us. How thankful we are, Lord, that from the beginning you showed that you had a plan leading up to the Redeemer, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And nothing ever kept you from that plan. You fulfilled it, and you brought him into our lives to save us. How grateful we are in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Jesus name. Amen. Jesus name. Amen. Jesus name. Amen. Jesus name. Amen. Jesus name.